Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and beginning in verse 12, we will be zeroing in on verses 14 and following uh, to the end of the section, but we'll continue reading from verse uh, 12. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we continue uh, in our study of this greatest of all letters, the book of Romans. Please hear the word of God. Romans 8 and verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us that by your Spirit you would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would receive and by your grace believe and respond to all that is found here in your holy, authoritative, and sufficient word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his opening salutation to the Christians in Rome, Paul addresses them as, in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, as all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. He addresses them as those who are loved by God and called to be saints. This description of these Christians is not something to be glossed over. It's something uh, to revel in, to glory in. Again, Paul says that the believers in Rome are loved by God and called to be saints or called to be holy. In the Greek, hagion, it's translated saints. We're not talking about some higher level of Christian that the Roman Catholic Church has anointed. Saints used in the Bible are mentioning holy ones, God's people. It's a fitting description, isn't it, for all Christians in every age. Loved by God and called to be holy. It's a fitting description for us, for us here this morning who are united to Jesus by grace through faith. We, we too are loved by God and called to be holy. Dear believer, let this sink in. You are loved by God. And called to be one of God's holy ones. It's what Paul has been teaching throughout the first eight and a half chapters of this glorious epistle. And what we have learned is that while our natural sinful condition is worse than we realized, chapters 118 through 320, God's love for us is greater than we ever imagined. Whatever you think, Dear ones, of the love of God, it's bigger and grander and more glorious than you ever or I ever imagined. It's what Paul has been teaching throughout the first eight and a half chapters of this epistle. God's love for us is so great that he purposed our redemption before time. 
And then in time sent his only begotten son into the world to save us from what our sins truly deserve. God's love for us is so great that that rather than letting us justly perish in our rebellion and sin, by the way, something I am convinced every one of us in this room would be glad to let our enemies perish in their sin without giving it much thought. We find ourselves so much more loving than God at times, right? I, uh, I think God should do it this way, or why didn't God do it that way? Let us be careful with such comments. God's love is so much bigger and grander than anything we could conceive of or in any way that we ourselves would respond, even to our enemies. But God's love is so grand, it's so awesome that rather than let us justly perish in our rebellion and sin, rather than leave us to ourselves to die under that impossible, the impossible and crushing requirements of the law, God sent His only Son into this sin-cursed world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That is, to perfectly fulfill all the standards of God's righteous requirements and as a perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice, willingly laid down His life on the cross to pay the full and complete debt of our sins. We deserve God's wrath for our sin, but Christ, who didn't deserve it, bore our sin on Calvary. The gospel doesn't get any less complicated. Christ has saved us from our sins. We are loved by God. Paul wants us to know this. He wants us to understand this. And it's often the case that Christians, even Christians that have been in churches for many, many years and decades, do not understand this. For various reasons, Christians doubt God's love or minimize God's love or misunderstand the nature and effects of God's love in Christ. It's the perpetual problem. It's what Paul knew. It's what the apostles knew. And so they continue to reinforce this gospel over and over again from different angles and different approaches, but all the same gospel in Christ. Paul wants the church at Rome to grasp in greater measure the profound depths of God's love in and through his son. He addresses them as those whom God loves. That's why he labors so diligently, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, to make clear the bad news about sin, death, and judgment, what we deserve, and the good news of forgiveness, life, and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, what we receive. Dear ones, Paul wants believers in Rome and believers everywhere to know that they are truly loved by God. What about suffering, Pastor John? Paul deals with that too. We're coming to it. In Romans chapter 8, we're coming to it. Eventually, I promise, we're coming to it. God wants us to know that we are loved. Paul wants us to know that we are loved by God. And so he's been showing us not only that we are loved by God, but how we are loved by God. He's doing this so that we will live our Christian lives Now, please listen, not in slavish fear, 
to sin or to the law, our former masters. But in security and confidence, as one who has been set free from the dominion of sin and given a new status, a new relationship with God, a new family, and a new spirit within us, what the apostle calls in verse 15, now get this, the spirit of adoption. Are you getting the sense now that the kind of easy believism, pray a prayer and you're okay, live kind of the same as you always have, but it's just this kind of superficial thing? Do you see how this is not only ridiculous, but actually contrary to this gospel that we have set forth here in the book of Romans? We have received the spirit of adoption. Now, rather than race through these profoundly important verses in verses 14 through 17, we're going to spend a couple of weeks unpacking the riches of the content, the gospel content of these verses. How long is it going to be, Pastor John? How long are we going to be in verses 14 through 17? Answer, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a bit of a, I got a little Highland Scots in me, the mystical Highland Scots preacher thing where I I just, I'm studying, I'm preparing, I'm getting a lot of good stuff down, and I got a certain amount of time I can say it in each service. So I don't know how long we'll be in 14 through 17, but there's a lot of good stuff here. And I want us to just just not skim the surface, but but drill down a bit because it's so important for our Christian lives. We're going to spend some time basking in the light and truth of our spiritual adoption, a benefit of our union with Christ that is not founded upon what we do or how we feel, but on what God has done in and through His beloved Son. Dear ones, those who believe in Christ, those who have received Him by grace through faith, are sons of God are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, adopted into God's family and never to be cast off. Whatever title you may receive in this world, through education, through business, through whatever, whatever, whatever title you may be given, the GOAT, right? The GOAT in athletics. Nothing compares to having these titles. And one day, when when everyone is standing before God at the judgment, no one is going to, be, no one's going to care about being the goat of anything. The only thing that's going to matter is are you in Christ? Are you found in Him? Not having a righteousness of your own that's found in the law, but a righteousness that is found in Christ, a perfect righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. To be in Christ is to be a son or daughter of God Almighty, the Almighty and Sovereign God who is also a loving and tender Father to His blood-bought children. Dear ones, just when you thought the good news of the gospel couldn't get any better, here we are. It's getting better. We are introduced to the precious doctrine of spiritual adoption. Now, interestingly, uh, the Bible uh, only uses the Greek word for adoption five times. Only five times. It's used here, of course, in Romans 8, 14 through 17. It's also used, you'll notice, in Romans 8 and verse 23. It's also used in Romans 9 and verse 4. Uh, again, it's used in Galatians 4, 5 and Ephesians 1, 4. 
So it's those five places where this particular word adoption is used in the New Testament. In each case, there's a different emphasis upon the doctrine of adoption, which which teaches us about the gospel and all the riches and benefits of the gospel and how it relates to our salvation, our new status and identity in Christ. And so in our text for this morning, what is emphasized is the contrast between our old lives of bondage to sin and our new lives in the Spirit. And what we're doing this morning is we are introducing this, uh, this doctrine, this, this, this idea of spiritual adoption in God's Word. We're just, we're just taking off. We're just taking off off the runway this morning, and we'll have so much more. But we want to touch upon some important topics as we introduce this subject what is emphasized in our particular text okay, is the contrast between the old lives of bondage to sin and our new lives in the Spirit. And because we are no longer obligated to the sinful flesh as our master, verse 12, that old slave master, but rather in Christ our adopted sons and daughters of our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, We no longer need to live, therefore, in slavish fear. We're going to really unpack that later, but I just want to make this point. As Paul makes it here, because we've been set free from sin and from the old master, we no longer live our Christian lives in slavish fear. We live as adopted sons and daughters of the living God. We live by faith in Christ and with an eye to all that is ours in Him. Well, look with me at chapter 8 and verse 23. We see it used there. What's introduced here is the the eschatological vision of the sons of God, that forward-looking anticipation of the return of Christ, that one day in the future when Christ returns, we will be brought to the full knowledge and experiences and blessings of our spiritual adoption. One problem that some I'd say many Christians have in our day is what we call, it's kind of a fancy term, an overrealized eschatology. In other words, people, Christians think that I, I want to have now everything that I should only, that I need to remember, I will only have in heaven. So the health and wealth gospel rides on this premise. God wants you to have everything now. And if you don't have it, you just don't have enough faith. So send me more of your money. And that'll mean you're having more faith, and that means I can buy my jet, and you can be blessed. That's the health and wealth gospel, wicked, straight from hell doctrine, right? So overrealized eschatology isn't isn't only with the health and wealth gospel. It's It's also with the idea of cultural transformation, that we need to fix the world and all of its problems. And that's the main goal and aim of the visible church is to fix the world and all of its problems. That's an overrealized eschatology because everything won't be made completely right until the return of Christ. Of course we pursue justice. Of course we, we love and we seek to be good citizens in our communities. But we recognize the limits of what we can do right now in this life. Everything will be fixed and changed when Christ returns. But for now, we live by faith. 
And Paul says in verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so there's a kind of fullness and forward-looking nature to our adoption where we'll have our sort of full experience and knowledge of adoption in, at the return of Christ. How about Romans 9, 4? It's used there again. The apostle employs the word adoption in relation to Israel, to the nation of Israel, demonstrating that they were a privileged nation, though they too often spurned their privileges and instead embraced idols and largely rejected the Messiah. The term adoption in this context refers to the anticipation of the fulfillment of true spiritual adoption in Christ. What about Galatians 4, 4 through 7? We see that familiar verse that reminds us of the the telos or the ultimate aim of Christ's coming in relation to adoption. Look there with me in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Quote, you'll recognize these verses, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, now listen, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And then he goes on, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son, the Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Frank Thielman, in his commentary on Romans, highlights the fact that many within the early church in Rome, in Galatia, and and Ephesus would have been former slaves. They themselves would have been former slaves or at least been acutely aware of the violent and abusive relationship between masters and slaves. We're going to return to this point again and again over the next few weeks, but, but here God wants us to understand that our relationship to Him is antithetical to or opposite to our former relationship with our old master's sin and the law. And remember, the law was never bad in and of itself. It was the weakness of our flesh, Romans 8, 3, that made the law an impossible taskmaster to us. But the law in and of itself is good. It's holy. It's righteous. Paul makes that point again and again in Romans. But because of our weakness... And because many will seek to try to find salvation in their obedience to the law, the law then becomes an impossible taskmaster. And so Paul says we've been saved from under the law, the crushing demands of the law as a means of salvation. And we've been saved from the the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 through 3. With our old masters, there was only confusion and destruction and impossible demands. In Christ, we are now redeemed sons who are loved by God with an everlasting love. Not the kind of love that's shown in this world, which is imperfect and temporary. This is everlasting. This is what every single person born into the world is ultimately looking for. You know that old country hymn, looking for love in all the wrong places? I'm not going to sing it for you. But that really characterizes human nature. Every person that is born in this world in the image of God 
can only find true love and true happiness in one place, and that is in God himself. He's made us for himself. He has wired us for communion with himself. And that wiring has become so messed up because of sin. But Christ came to save us and to lead us back to God and to fellowship and communion with God. And he is a loving, loving master. This is a love that always has our best in mind and our best in store. The final verses touching upon adoption, that is employing the Greek word for adoption, are found in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Again, another familiar text to many of you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen, even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here again, Paul is punctuating the telos or the aim, the ultimate aim of God's plan and purpose for us in salvation. That is to sovereignly choose, to divinely predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Why? Again, look at verse 5. To the praise of his glorious grace. Rather than make us the center of the universe which our flesh is constantly trying to make us the center of the universe, and the world is trying to convince us that we are the center of the universe and so we should buy their product, right? The Bible says that God is at the center of all things. He's the creator. Here we are reminded that all of this is ultimately for the glory of God. And the eternal praise of his resplendent grace. We are always the beneficiaries of God's great salvation. But we are never the ultimate end of it. It's always the glory of God. And the eternal worship that it ignites. Beloved, we have been taught repeatedly in our study of Romans. That through faith in Christ. And what he has done for us. We are justified. That is, we have been declared righteous, declared righteous. The gavel has come down, not guilty. You are declared righteous through faith in Christ. We are justified because of what he has done. We've been declared righteous by the Father, not for our own works, but for the works of Christ. We were condemned, but no longer There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We were enslaved to sin, but no longer. We were dead in sin, but no longer. We were under the law, an exacting, demanding, and unforgiving master, but no longer. Paul is teaching us that now, by God's grace, through the gospel of his Son, we have been set free from sin and are now under the loving 
dominion of Christ. We are now alive in the Spirit and dwelt by the same Spirit that indwells Christ our Lord. We are now under His grace and guaranteed an everlasting inheritance that Jesus earned for us through His death and resurrection. Beloved, if only these things were true, what a great salvation this would be. If that was it, what a great salvation this would be. But there's more. There's more. Paul introduces the doctrine of adoption. And he teaches us here that united to Christ... Not only are we set free and made alive, not only have we been given His Spirit to dwell within us, not only are we declared righteous, that is justified before the holy throne of God's justice, not only are we being sanctified and conformed more and more to the image of Christ and our promise that we will dwell with God forever, but what we are told here, dear ones, is that we are also, in addition to all of these spiritual blessings, declared to be sons and daughters of God In the Son. We are sons in the Son. United to Him. United to Christ, God's Son. We have the status of sons and daughters of God. God is not just our God. Dear one, He is your Father in Christ. Lord, teach us to pray. Our Father who art In heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 12 explains adoption this way. You can go back and read it later. I encourage you to to read it. Look all the verses up that are connected to all these wonderful clauses and phrases. Chapter 12. The Doctrine of Adoption, Westminster Confession of Faith, quote, All those that are justified. So in case you were wondering, can there be a Christian that's justified but not adopted? Can there be someone who has received Christ truly as Lord and Savior and yet not be a child of God? They answer it right here in this first clause. All those who are justified, God vouchsafeth or grants, in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have His name put upon them, baptism, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him. For what parent does not discipline their child? As by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Glory, hallelujah. We are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Dear ones, you are the beloved of God. Those who are united to Christ by faith and led by the Spirit are sons of God, members of His royal 
household, inheritors of all that is Christ for eternity. Knowing this, understanding this, and embracing this is key to your piety and your discipleship and your Christian living. So that you do not live in slavish fear to the old man, to the old way, to the old slave master sin, to the old approach to the law, where you were viewing the law as a means to your eternal life and it, it, it never gave you a clear conscience because you knew you were always transgressing that law. And so Christ comes and he has obeyed that law for you and he's, he's died for your sins and he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you've received him, and so no longer are you enslaved to those things. You don't need to live in slavish fear. You live in love and gratitude and, 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 and before a loving Father who loves you with an everlasting love. With your he- head held high as a redeemed child of God whose place in heaven is as secure as the one who sits at God's right hand. He who is your intercessor and advocate, Christ, your Savior and King. As we draw to a close in this introduction to these verses, I want to simply introduce a couple of warnings and then a couple of exhortations in relation to the doctrine of adoption. I have four warnings. Number one. All of humanity are not God's children. There's an idea, things that politicians often say, uh, liberal pastors and theologians will say, well, you know, we're all God's children in this world. No, we're not. The Bible does not teach that. We're all God's creation. We're all created in the image of God, yes, but we are not all sons of God. Only the redeemed are his true sons. We see that clearly set forth in all of these passages about spiritual adoption. Only by being in the Son are we sons of God. Only in Christ are we sons and daughters of God. Secondly, another warning. Be careful not to make too much of the analogy between human adoption and spiritual adoption. There are many beautiful similarities But there are also many differences. And so we want to be careful not to make too much of the analogous relationship so as to cause confusion on the infinitely greater and secure blessings of spiritual adoption. As Dave Garner states in his excellent book called Sons in the Sun, quote, human adoption experiences do not produce the gripping theological analogies quite as neatly as they first seem to do. We'll consider these things more later, God willing. Thirdly, be careful not to allow your thoughts of your own earthly father to cast shade on your altogether perfect and loving heavenly father. Amen? Do not let perhaps a difficult relationship with your father or grandfather or whatever to cast shade upon God as a perfect, tender Loving, all-wise, heavenly Father. Fourthly, when it comes to spiritual adoption and your relationship with God the Father through Christ by the Spirit, 
Be careful not to put more focus upon your unreliable feelings than on the objective promises of God. Our faith is not in our own feelings about God, but in God's promises fulfilled in His Son. Our adoption is not founded upon how we feel, but on what Christ has done and our union with Him. Trust not in yourselves, but trust in God and His promises that He's given to us, all fulfilled in His Son. Exhortations, a few exhortations. Number one, Dear ones, you are loved by God and called to be saints, holy ones. Spiritual adoption is one more glorious benefit of our union with Christ that not only proves that love, but also demonstrates why we are called to be holy. Why we now have this new relationship to the law, not as that which uh, crushes us and its demands for obedience by which we are saved, but as a guide for the Christian life. We love the law. Oh, how I love thy law, O Lord. I meditate on it day and night, not because it's a means for salvation, because it's a guide for my Christian life and how I might honor the Lord and show gratitude and obedience to Him. Secondly, your sonship is profoundly central to your fight against indwelling sin, indwelling remaining sin. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh is what sons and, God, uh, sons and daughters of God do. It's our calling. We don't do it perfectly. Sometimes we do it miserably. But through our inconsistencies and sin, we remember who we are and whose we are. God's redeemed children. So never stop fighting and taking the life out of remaining indwelling sin. It's what the sons of God do. It's what we're called to do. It's what we do indwelt by the Spirit. Notice Look with me at verse 12 again, Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now look at verse 14. For, so it's connected to the previous verse about putting to death the deeds of the flesh. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Recognizing, understanding, meditating upon our sonship assists us to fight against that remaining indwelling sin and to kill it, to crush it, and put it on life support. Thirdly, remember that God's name is upon you. You have access to the throne of grace, and you can come boldly because you're a child. Like the young child who burst open the door of their father's office when they're having a meeting about something very, very important. And the child comes in and has something they're excited about. Maybe he just found his toy that he had lost the day before. And rather than shooing the child out, says, come here, son. Hold on a minute, gentlemen. Embraces the son, shows him love and care. Walks him back out, tells him he loves him. You see, that, that is the relationship we have with the Father. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. We need not cower in fear or wonder if God's too busy for us. God loves us with an everlasting love. And he says, come, come to me boldly and I will help you. You have a father, dear ones, who loves you, 
and protects you and has compassion on you and will never cast you off, as the confession says. You are, as one commentator puts it, quote, related to God in a way that is closely similar to Jesus's relationship with God. In times of struggle and difficulty, remind yourself of this gospel truth. Dear ones, whatever the world may think of Christians, whatever you may at times think of yourself because of your remaining indwelling sin, and sometimes because of your doubts, God says to you here in Romans 8, those of you who are in Christ, faith in Him, as, as, as weak as that faith might be at this moment, those who have faith in Him, God's Word says to you, you are sons and daughters of God in the Son. You have a new status, a new name, a new family in which you will never be removed. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that we are sons in the Son. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the doctrine of spiritual adoption. And that you would help us to drill down into this text in these coming weeks that we would more understand who we are, what our identity is, and what you've called us to as your sons and daughters. Oh Lord, even now as we sing your praise and come to the table, would you feed and nourish us and remind us that as sons and daughters, you invite us to your table. You welcome us to your table and you feed us and you give us all the benefits of our redemption. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How sweet.